0: Namo dasa baka arahato samma sambudasa. Namo dasa baka arahato samma sambudasa. Namo dasa baka arahato samma sambudasa. Putang Welcome to another of these uh, Sunday afternoon webcasts and uh, Dhamma uh, explorations. So today is the uh, uh, summer solstice here in the Northern Hemisphere, June twenty-first, and so this is the uh, the brightest day of the year. This is where the the light element reaches its peak, and the the dark element uh, starts to reassert itself again. The, the, this uh, uh, mid-year turning point, the uh, lockdown has been proceeding now for about three months, uh, in, uh, March to April to May to June, so three uh, three months of this um, retreat uh, environment of being fixed in one place and with these uh, very um, limiting uh, say, conditions on the, the lives of, of most people uh, in this country and, and around the world. Uh, many, many nations uh, uh, employing this kind of um, containment, limitation of movement, as, uh, say, a, a tailing off of the, um, the instances of the infection. Uh, things seem, seem to be uh, fading in terms of the illness in, in certain countries, and in this country uh, to some degree and so that the restrictions are beginning to be lifted but um still there's many uh, uh, many procedures for containment protection social, social distancing social distancing in place and so on um one of the issues that uh, that, that has come up people ask questions about or come up uh, in terms of conversation is um the effects of living so closely to each other. Uh, I've uh, seen many instances of Uh, domestic violence, uh, increasing in this country and around the world, uh, uh, people in social work, social care providers, uh, uh, having to work overtime to deal with the kind of tensions and frictions that come from, from people, um, living in close quarters with each other and having, uh, frayed tempers, uh, the, uh, feelings of anger, frustration, uh, and friction with each other sort of boiling over and people uh, having a, um, a difficult time, dealing with that kind of containment, that kind of frustration. Uh, one of the, the practices that we have within uh, Buddhist tradition, uh, I feel is uh, very important, not just as a, as a ritual, but also as a, an attitude of mind to be cultivated, is that of forgiveness uh, say when somebody uh, has been staying in a monastery for a period of time or been on a retreat and then they they're leaving to to go to a different place and they have a ceremony of asking for forgiveness there's a a small ritual that we carry out whereby uh, the person says whatever i have done through the three doors of body speech or mind that has been painful or offensive or upsetting uh, to To you, then I ask for your forgiveness, and then the the uh, the person who's leading the ceremony says, "I forgive you and please forgive me also. So a, a couple of the uh, resident uh, Sangha here having to go back to Thailand shortly, so they carried out this little ceremony uh, uh, here yesterday at the um, at our Monday opposited uh, meeting. So this is, I feel, a very um, skilful thing. It doesn't have to be in, in, in the form of a, a ritual as such, but that uh, uh, that process of forgiving, of firstly acknowledging that we have um, possibly done something wrong, because it's also whether you, uh, you know about it or you don't know about it, you still ask for forgiveness anyway. Yeah? Maybe I've said something or done something the way I've, I've acted has been upsetting or irritating, offensive, painful to you, and I have no idea that uh, that's been the case. But uh, I ask for forgiveness in, uh, in respect to anything known, seen or unseen, known or unknown, by body, speech or mind, is a sort of blanket request uh, uh, to be forgiven for any kind of hurt or harm or difficulty that we've caused each other. And then the response is, I forgive you and please forgive me also, because the recognition is that regardless of where you are in a relationship, senior or junior, or elder or younger, or parent or child, the the one in the senior or stronger or, or, uh, say, the more um, uh, respected position can also act in ways that are offensive or upsetting or painful this is uh, I feel this is a very skillful process because it's recognizing that we we irritate each other we we experience friction living together. I remember from uh, many many years ago when I was a a, a a pupil at school in a biology class when the biology te- the biology teacher was asking everybody yeah, what is the one characteristic that all living things share and it's not that all things um, say breathe oxygen, or it's not uh, the uh, the case that all all living things uh, eat uh, uh, eat food in the same way. But the one characteristic that all living beings share is that they are irritable. Irritability is the one characteristic that all living beings have in common, <laughs> which is kind of a, a reassuring, but also a bit depressing at the same time. But uh, we are irritable, and that's. That's what we all share, and then being in close quarters and not having many uh, outlets that increases the the irritability so the, the buddha's teaching uh, uh, allows for that and recognizes yeah, when you live together with the best of intentions we we uh, we cause friction uh, we we clash with each other we we irritate each other and and uh, so it's a good opportunity when we're parting company to say. Please forgive me, uh, and uh, and I forgive you also. So that during these times, um, not just here in the monastery, but in in uh, the homes, uh, people around the world, or others that we've been in contact with, even if it's just somebody you've been in contact with through a, a Zoom meeting, <laughs> you can irritate people on other continents as well, quite quite effectively through uh, electronic media. You don't have to be in the same room to be annoying, uh, but. Uh, to uh, to be say uh, cultivating that that quality of of forgiveness, uh, both the humility to ask to be forgiven, not that you're sort of justifying that everything that you do is good and right but recognizing that, yeah, we, we, we can annoy each other and um, to humbly request to, to, to be forgiven for that and then also to be gracious to, to forgive others for the, the shortcomings that they have shown, the, the, the kind of spaciousness, the grandeur of heart to say, yeah, I forgive you too. And I, I feel this is particularly within families or people living close together. This is a really important um, say, a quality, a practice to, to develop because it helps us to begin again. We recognize that yes, we irritate each other, we, we can cause friction with each other, that's a natural part of living, but we don't have to make that what defines how we exist in, in connection with each other. We don't have to make that irritation or that friction the most important thing. We can say, yeah, that's, that does happen, but let's not Allow that to dominate our lives. We can, we can recognize that. And so the Buddha established this um, process of of asking for forgiveness as a way of sustaining harmony in, in the Sangha, in the, in the community. It's out of uh, the, the intention to support the well-being of the whole that you recognize these, uh, these areas of friction and, and tension and, and uh, difficulty. So oh, being ready to forgive others is one thing, but also being ready to forgive ourselves when we recognize that um, it wasn 't somebody else that was causing the problem it was it was number one it was <laughs> it was me that was uh, that was speaking harshly or that uh, you know, uh, that uh, I lost my temper or I was being greedy or selfish or uh, impatient in some way. And so that uh, for, for many people, forgiving others is easier than forgiving ourselves. We can have a, a, a very basic, a radical, um, kind of automatic sense of self-criticism that, you know, I'm not worthy, I'm not good enough, I'm a failure, I'm, uh, uh, I'm disappointing to people, I, I, didn't, I didn't do well enough, I'm, uh, I'm not up to scratch. And even saying those words you know, the, uh, the 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 mind can hear those and say oh yeah that 's right that 's right, I am I am unworthy, I am no good, I am no good, so forgiving uh, ourselves is also uh, equally important, if not more important, and uh, that uh, again it 's not pretending that we haven 't done things that are worthy of criticism, maybe we did speak harshly, maybe we were selfish, maybe we were greedy, and we we put ourselves first and, and took advantage of a situation and didn't think about other people, or did act in ways that were hurtful. So we're not pretending that all our behavior is, is beautiful or noble or or, um, or uh, wholesome, but rather we don't have to make that what uh, <coughs> what we define ourselves by in exactly the same way. We can recognize, yes, there's that shortcoming, I made that mistake, I, I fell into that, that transgression. I spoke harshly. I, I, I bent the truth uh, to get what I wanted. Um, yes, that happened. And then, uh, as and it's, uh, uh, as a humility again in recognizing that. But if we do, then uh, then it can be let go of. And over and over and over again, when the Buddha is talking about spiritual training uh, for the monastic community, also for for lay people uh, to uh, to a degree. Uh, he uses the phrase uh, to recognize your transgression as such and to uh, to make the effort to do better this is called development in the buddha sasana this is called furtherance or the, the way that we we improve things uh, in the in the Buddha's dhamma and discipline in his teaching. So that, and I feel again, that's a part of the Buddha's brilliance as a teacher, his extraordinary skill as a teacher, understanding human nature. He, he knew that we make mistakes. He knew that just by say, shaving your head and going forth into the, into the holy life, doesn't mean suddenly you know, all of your habits of, of selfishness and fear and jealousy and greed and, and lust and uh, anger suddenly you know, disappear. Not at all, but um, it's uh, the robe and the the, uh, the monastic training or the the the, the spiritual training of a, a lay disciple, upasika, upasa, They are um, they are ways of dealing with the habits that we have, the conditioning that we have, and that rather than sort of pretending that we we, we never make mistakes or or hating ourselves because we do make mistakes, the, the Buddha drives the the, the line right down the middle of recognizing the mistakes that we make as such and seeing the the painful consequences of those and then endeavouring to to do better in the future setting the intention to learn from that and to to do better and this this is what he calls development this is how we how we we make things better for ourselves and for the people that uh, that we live with so. Who knows how lo- much longer the um, lockdown will, will continue, <laughs> this is un- unknowable. Um, the <clears throat> but as long as we are living in these contained situations, very close to each other and in this kind of, let um, say, limited range of uh, of movement and activity, then I feel this is a skillful thing to bring to mind, the readiness to forgive, to forgive others for uh, the way that they disappoint or annoy or upset or, or, or irritate us, and also to forgive ourselves for not always being unselfish and kind and compassionate and peaceful and wise and uh, calm and skillful and so on. That uh, we have those aspirations, but uh, can't always be that way and to recognize yes well I I lost it there but uh, please forgive me and uh, let's begin again and recognizing for ourselves, yeah I really was acting out of a selfish uh, foolish indulgent place uh, and uh, uh, I I know I can do better than that and again letting go and and setting an intention to uh, to do uh, to do better to live more skillfully to have a more skillful Attitude and the uh, mode of action and speech uh, in the future. We have a slightly smaller number of of questions uh, this week, some from outside the monastery, some from inside. That'll be, uh, the first one Dear Ajahn Amaro, I see that one of the biggest challenges we face is how to remain positive and to maintain our own good and peaceful energy when we are not always surrounded by that. How does one apply Buddhist beliefs to ensure that one is not negatively affected by negative energy? I.e., how do you maintain your peaceful nature when people are shouting at you or protesting against you? And the last line says, may you enjoy good health always. Um, well, uh, I, I can see that, again, this is a good aspiration, noble aspiration to have uh, good and peaceful energy uh, all of the time. But it isn't always that way. And sometimes uh, what we are experiencing is um, sadness or loneliness, frustration. Uh, we're, we're feeling irritation. Uh, or if, say, we're being criticized or... or um, uh, People are shouting at you or protesting against you. Um, that that that's not enjoyable. That's that's not uh, pleasant or or comfortable. And so that uh, I feel that if we have the idea that Buddhist practice is going to make us sort of cheerful and happy uh, and comfortable all the time, uh, we're we're missing the point. Um, and that uh, the 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 fact is that. Uh, there are, uh, uh, say, things that cause uncomfortable emotional states, you know, if you're, if you're being shouted at then it's not, the the emotion that arises, is not going to be, oh, how nice, someone's yelling in my face, no, there's going to be a a sense of fear or or receiving that that painful uh, uh, sort of uh, mood from someone else, it's in your face, literally, and that's natural to feel a sense of, of, of fear or a sense of shock or, or dislike as a bitterness there in that emotion. And so Buddhism's not trying to make everything sweet, but rather the, uh, uh, the capacity that the, the, the heart, the mind has to be awake to the way things are. So uh, over the years, I found Lumpur Sumedha's teachings on this area particularly helpful because he was uh, always emphasizing how um, it's, it's quite all right to be, uh, to be sad, it's quite all right to be uh, uh, uncomfortable, it's quite all right to, to feel lonely, and uh, if we uh, say really look at, the, at the, the flow of emotions and perceptions we experience, sometimes they're sweet and delightful, sometimes they're neutral and sometimes they're bitter and painful. Um, uh, I, I, last year, I think it was actually on Christmas Day, I gave a, a, a Dhamma talk here about how to be sad, how to be lonely and how to be bored. <laughs> Which doesn't sound like a very appealing theme for a Dhamma talk, you know, how to be lonely, sad and bored. But I, uh, I think uh, if we recognize that sometimes things make us feel sad, there's a, there's a grief. You know, if you just heard that your, your, your mother or your father's died or your child has died, you're not going to be cheerful, it's not, it's not a, it's not going to be a happy feeling, there's going to be sadness, it's, that's completely natural and, and, and ordinary. Uh, if, um, if uh, we feel that we shouldn't feel, uh, ever be sad, or we shouldn't ever be lonely, or well, uh, we shouldn't ever have those kind of bitter feelings, we're, we're living in a, in a fantasy world. It's, uh, because in many respects it's, it's like the weather, you know, that we might find when uh, the weather is sort of sunny and bright and, and the, the sunlight uh, illuminates all the, the roses in the garden and the, the the kind of lift in the heart, oh how beautiful, how lovely, uh, That that's a natural sweet feeling. If it's cold and rainy and there's a sharp wind, then the the... the a natural emotional response is is going to be, in in all likelihood, different. Oh, it's a cold day, oh, it's really bitter, oh, it's freezing. And that's the effect of the weather. Uh, That's that's not kind of a a flaw in us, there's nothing going wrong with us. It's just that's the effect of of cold, dark and and bitter uh, wind, you know, uh, sort of biting into the skin, ow, it's cold, (laughs) shivering. So that, um, I would say, uh, change of attitude where we're not trying to make everything sweet but rather being awake to what's there means that when there are feelings of sadness you're not trying to push them away or cheer yourself up but rather to say, oh, this is this is the feeling of sadness, this is grief, this is what it's like, or loneliness. Uh, so um, maybe when I was talking about dealing with frustration and irritation with the people that you live with, maybe your experience is the opposite end of the spectrum and that you're dealing with loneliness. You're in lockdown all by yourself and you'd really like to have someone around to be annoyed with <laughs> because you're just lonely. Just so much time just by yourself. and You, you miss your friends. and. Uh, it's it's painful to be uh, alone. So uh, that in, in so in response to this question, I feel that it's uh, uh, not the matter of, of feeling uh, so happy and um, uh, peaceful all the time. If something, if things are agitated, then you're going to feel that agit That sort of the energy of agitation is going to be there. If there's uh, if th- there's uh, something that's threatening, you're going to feel fear. If something is is saddening, like the a, a death of somebody in your family, someone close to you. You're going to feel grief. Uh, melancholy is not a defilement. Uh, sadness is not a defilement. It's a it's a natural emotion. And uh, I often quote this passage, where after the towards the end of the Buddha's life, um, uh, when Venerable Sariputta and Moggallana had passed away, uh, the the Buddha makes this comment. He said. Uh, uh, he's talking to a large assembly of, of people, and he said, "It's it's as if the assembly was empty because Sariputra and Moggallana have passed away." So even the Buddha makes that comment that that these people who were so close to him, who were sort of such a um, uh, important part of him building the sangha and um, Establishing the teachings that the the the, his companions for so many decades that they've died and and he said uh, even though there's hundreds hundreds of people present, the feeling he describes and is there in the sutta. It says it's as if the assembly is empty because these two beings are are not present. So I feel that that's a really good teaching that uh, we're not trying to sort of push away sadness or fear or loneliness or, or or boredom. Uh, as some kind of a, a, of a of a problem, but rather we're able to open the heart to recognize. Yeah, you know, in this moment, it's this way. Like if it's a, a sort of a, a grey, drizzly, uh, cold uh, day, here it is. It's like this. This is the weather today, because if we only want sunshine and 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 brightness, <laughs> and never want any kind of darkness and and coldness, then we're we're living in the in the wrong universe. So today is the is the summer solstice. the the the, uh, the weather is bright. There's the maximum brightness. This is the longest day. So it's it's light for the largest number of hours of of the day here in the northern hemisphere. And this is its peak. This is the peak of the light element. But from today on, then the, the dark element starts to increase until we get to the the winter solstice, when the dark is at its maximum and the, the light is at its minimum. If you, 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 you if you have the one, you have the other. If you have the the, the winter, you have the summer. If you have uh, brightness, you have darkness. If you have the the joy of uh, of being with your friends, then you have the sadness of separation from from your friends. That's that's a, a natural um, a, 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 a array of feelings. It's a, like the cycles of the seasons. They're completely ordinary and normal. They're the two sides of the same hand. The front and the back of the same hand. So I think changing the the attitude in this way um, is uh, in particular is uh, is helpful when dealing with um, negativity from outside. Also, as a, maybe as a small. Uh, P.S., a postscript, that um, particularly if um, uh, you find yourself getting swept up with, with fear or reactivity, then relaxation in the body is a very helpful way of, um, say, uh, working with negative feelings being expressed. If somebody is shouting at you or getting upset with you or uh, is sort of in your face, then bringing the attention into the body and consciously letting your shoulders uh, relax, letting your stomach soften, letting your jaw become more relaxed. That's a very helpful way of, of uh, enabling yourself to come from a place of responsivity rather than re, uh, reactivity. Second one. Hello, Ajahn. Please would you be so kind as to answer this question. Over the years, I've developed a meditation practice that involves meditating on the entire body, sensing the body and its reactions to thoughts as they flow through the mind. This practice has helped me to become much more in tune with my body and has even helped reduce such things as anxiety and depression. However, could you reflect and give your opinion as to whether this is in any way descriptive of what might be called Buddhist meditation? Or have I simply developed a meditation practice that is little more than a relaxation exercise, and thus not necessarily leading towards insight or enlightenment? Many thanks. Uh, good, uh, good question. I would say, it, uh, from what is written here, it sounds very, very much like Buddhist meditation. Um, the, um, what's called the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, the, the first three of those, uh, mindfulness of the body mindfulness of, of sensations or of vedana physical sensations and then the third one Nupasana, uh, mindfulness or in, uh, in uh, reflection on uh, on mind states and moods that seems to be very close to what you're describing here and that, that satipatthana meditation the meditation on the foundations of mindfulness is is very um, is kind of the as the venerable nyanaponika's book uh, uh, is entitled. It's the heart of Buddhist meditation, yeah, at least in the, in the Southern Buddhist world. That uh, uh, satipatthana, the, the foundations of mindfulness, uh, is is very much that way. The the fourth of the foundations of mindfulness is the conscious development of wisdom. So it's called dhamma there's there's different ways of of reading um, the the descriptions of it, but essentially it's uh, uh, and as you say. Does this lead on to insight or enlightenment? I'd say that fourth uh, uh, aspect of the the foundations of mindfulness is the one that is most uh, say precisely. Uh, attuned to the development of wisdom because it's that Dhammanupasana is seeing things in terms of, of Dhamma or in particular developing the, the perception of change with respect to the body or, or feelings or uh, mind states so that it's seeing things in terms of dhamma seeing things in terms of the natural order and particularly the the cyclical or transient nature of of experience so that uh, rather than uh, say where you um, with mindfulness of the body you might be uh, seeing the you know thinking of the body in terms of its uh, constituent elements the different organs and uh, fluids and, and gases that make up the body or you might be reflecting on the body in terms of the elements of earth, water, fire, and wind, or the activities of the body, sitting, standing, walking, lying down, and so on. That these are all aspects of mindfulness of the body. Or Vedana, sensation, uh, focusing on pleasant feeling, neutral feeling, or painful feelings uh, of, of the body. Uh, <clears throat> that uh, say, for, for example, the Dhammanupasana is not looking at whether it's, uh, whether it's a painful feeling or a pleasant feeling, but is it changing? Uh, not looking at whether you're standing or sitting or walking or lying down, but the changing quality of one posture uh, transforming into another. Uh, not just looking at the uh, the so organs of the body or the bones of the body or the blood and, and such like, but reflecting on how they change, how the body is in a constant uh, say process of transformation and, and change. So that, that the fourth of the four foundations is specifically aimed at developing what's called the Anicca Sanya, or the perception of, of uncertainty, the perception of change, and that is what is the, um, the, the the key element to developing wisdom. It's like letting go of the content of experience and looking at the process of experiencing. So that rather than, uh, is it inside or outside, is it changing? Uh, is it something that can be held onto as, a, as I and me and mine? Is it something that can permanently satisfy? And then in those, uh, raising those reflections, seeing things in those ways, then that's what brings about the quality of insight, the clear seeing of, uh, of, uh, of things in terms of nature rather than in terms of self. And then that insight of uh, uh, say, liberation or the, the quality of letting go and the heart freeing itself from entanglement uh, and possessiveness towards uh, the body or the perceptions of the world or feelings or ideas, thoughts, emotions, memories uh, and so on. So I, I would say that um, what you've been doing is is very close to um, Buddhist meditation but uh, if uh, that last aspect of um, wise reflection investigation in uh, particularly in terms of the process of, unser- of change and uncertainty and uh, then that would really sort of complete the set and i think if you're interested to develop more in the way of buddhist meditation just looking up uh, the four foundations of mindfulness uh, or the satipatthana and particularly looking at the uh, the, the fourth one then that will say uh, help to complete the picture for you Next one, uh, sharing of merit. Dear Ajahn Amaro, I hope everyone at Amravati is safe and well. Also, I would like to extend my gratitude to everyone who makes the online sessions possible. Once again, nod to the uh, audio-visual team and the website people. And thank you for the impressive upgrade on your website, with a smile. Makes it a lot easier to find things. So, uh, appreciations for the uh, the, the website. um, team as well. I would like to ask a question please. As I understand it, merit is gained by good actions like generosity, keeping the precepts, good deeds and more, and that the effect, uh, and that the, effect the fruit, ripens in future. So how do I share that with others? Especially sharing merit with dead friends and relatives is confusing to me. How can I let that sink in, quote-unquote? May you all be safe and well. So, uh, this is a, a fairly common question. And, uh, and sometimes it's said that, because uh, we have a, um, a, like a, a ceremony uh, that we do. Uh, usually before the mealtime we chant a blessing called the Anumodana. Uh, and, uh, oftentimes, uh, people from, at least in the southern Buddhist world, from, from Thailand or Sri Lanka, Myanmar, they have a ceremony of pouring water from one vessel into a, into a small dish. And that that um, uh, the the sharing of punya, the sharing of merit or blessings, is symbolised or signified by that pouring of water. Uh, with the lockdown, we haven't had any visitors coming on site, so we haven't had any uh, of these water pouring ceremonies. We do the anamodna every day and read out people's names and do uh, uh, say uh, say the um, recite the, um, the the verses of dedication. But the, the ritual of water pouring uh, hasn't been uh, hasn't been done, and uh, it, so sometimes people have the opinion, "Oh, this is just superstition. or this is just a, a quote-unquote Asian custom, and this has nothing to do with with Buddha Dhamma." Um, and uh, you know, the Buddha never taught about sharing merit and such like. And so, it, uh, particularly Westerners <laughs> are very uh, prone to saying that that kind of thing, and it, because they th- it's. Sort of, uh, uh, being uh, looked upon as some kind of a of superstition or a custom. But it does uh, have a, a grounding in the teachings, uh, in, uh, in, the, in, the, the, in the Pali Canon itself. Uh, in particular, there is a, um, a sutta, it's in uh, the uh, Book of the Sevens, the Angutra Nikaya, sutta number 53. And there was a, a, a lay uh, disciple, uh, a woman called Nanda Mata, or Nanda's mother is her name, and uh, she was a, 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 an exceptionally committed practitioner and uh, had been a disciple of, of the Buddha for a long time. and And, uh, and it's described how she was uh, reciting the uh, verses from the Sutta Nipata, the Pariyana, the Way to the Beyond, which is the the, the eighth chapter of the Sutta Nipata. So she's in her home reciting this, and then the uh, uh, the uh, um, the king of the, uh, of the northern quarter, King Vesavana, one of the four great kings, the Chattu Maharajas, uh, up in the Deva worlds, uh, is sort of passing by, quote, unquote, on, on some business. <laughs> and he hears her reciting the, the, the way to the beyond, and he sort of stops and listens to, listens to her recitation, and then sort of beams down and says, oh, well done, this is very nice to hear you uh, to be reciting the teachings in this way. And um, and so that uh, there's this dialogue that goes on between this Deva Deva Raja uh, Vesavana um, and uh, and Nandamata, uh, and uh, so then then uh, then Vesavana, if I'm remembering the story in the Sutta correctly, and you can look it up yourself, Sutta number fifty-three, Book of the Sevens, if you want to check. Um, uh, then uh, Vesavana says, "Oh, oh um, you know, this is uh, this is impressive. You know, you're, you're able to recite the teachings very well." Um, and uh, and he says, "I should let you know that the uh, Venerable Sariputra and Mogalana, at the head of a Sangha, are, are on their way here." And uh, and so she um, uh, is very happy to get this news, and she prepares food and invites uh, Sariputra, Mogalana, and the Sangha to come and receive a meal at her, at her house. And then. Uh, after they've made the meal offering, then uh, Sariputta, who had no psychic powers himself, interesting, he was a, a very accomplished meditator, but whereas Maha Moggallana had great psychic powers, Venerable Sariputta had none, and so Venerable Sariputta asked her, I'm kind of impressed that you had so much food ready for us. You know, uh, how did you know that we were on our way? I mean, this, is, this is kind of amazing that you are... That you've been able to provide for all of the sangha, and she said, "Oh well, King Vesavana told me." And he said, "Well, really?" <laughs> and uh, yeah, I said he uh, he came to visit this morning, and um, and he told me that you, the uh, Venerable Sariputta, Venerable Mahamoglan and the sangha would be coming this way. So I prepared food for you. So the uh, Venerable Sariputta is even more impressed. Oh, wow! That's, okay, <laughs> that's that's quite something, but. Uh, in the dialogue that she has with um with Vesavana before Sariputra Mogalana come then um uh, she uh, um she says oh that she'll be very happy to provide food for the sangha and that will be uh, a lot of merit for her and then um and then Vesavana says uh, I, you know I would I would be grateful if you would uh, dedicate the the merit to my own welfare, my own happiness. And she said, yes, I could do that. And so that, um, uh, and I I kind of, the reason why I know this was so well is I looked it up this morning, (laughs) just to check the numbers. And uh, so uh, she, um, she, uh, the dialogue that she, uh, uh, she has with Vesavana, she said, um, as she was describing it to Sariputra Moggallana, that let whatever merit I may have gained by this act of giving be dedicated to the happiness of the great Deva King Vesavanna. So that, uh, he asked her, can you dedicate the merit for me? And then later, and she says, yes, I can do that. And then when she says that to, to Venerable Sariputra, Venerable Mahamogalana, and, uh, and she's, uh, she says that, um, uh, by this, uh, may whatever merit I may have gained by this act of giving be dedicated to the happiness of the great Deva King Vaisavana. They don't say, "Don't be ridiculous, uh, Nandamata. You know, you can't dedicate merit to other people." Uh, they they don't say that at all. Uh, there's, it's quite a, a natural comment for her to make, and. Um, and the, the, you know, their response is, is very positive and uh, affirming. And so so that that's a, a very clear instance. And the language of it is you know, that she has uh, carried out this act of giving to the Sangha. She has, quote unquote, made lots of merit, or has created substantial good karma by doing that. And she can dedicate that sort of so sort of steer that, the, the blessings or benefits that come from that towards that, the happiness, the well-being of another entity to, towards Vesavana in, in particular in this case. So right there in the suttas you have a, a very clear instance of doing a, a, an act, a particular act of, of kindness, of generosity and a deliberate directing of the of wholesome results that come from that to a, another being so uh, uh you might argue with that or say well that's just made up or who you know, how do you know that's true <laughs> yeah not everything in the canon is is uh, is is reliable right yeah so people are you're welcome to be skeptical but it is there in the pali canon and to me it does there's no reason to suspect that it's been it put in later on or the language of it matches as far as i can tell the language of of uh most of the rest of of the Pali Canon very comfortably and very easily so that I feel it's it's uh, to me it's also very much in keeping with the teachings because in our ordinary everyday life we we share the merit of our lives quite regularly with each other just um, when we uh, we, uh, on somebody's birthday we send them a card or we send them a present or we send them an email with a bunch of flowers in the email and uh, and so that when somebody receives, you, you've had a good wish, oh, it's, it's so-and-so's birthday, oh, I should send them a greeting. And then when that person receives that greeting, it's, oh, he thought of me, oh, she, she didn't forget me, that's great. That you've had that kindly thought, you've acted on it to send a card or a gift or, a, or an email, and that the person who receives that, their heart is brightened. Oh, I, I am being remembered. I am loved. I am appreciated. Uh, here's a gesture of connection and and uh, warmth from this other person. And so, in, in many respects, you you have shared the goodness of your life with that other being. So, in many many ways, I feel like um, sharing the uh, punya with other beings is just like sending a card or sending a present or sending flowers. It's like uh, it's going out into the into the ether, into the sort of the um, noosphere, no noosphere, the the uh, the kind of field of uh, of mental activity and uh, sort of relatedness that we uh, that uh, we have with each other in um, in the, the the world, I would say, the the way that we can think of each other, we remember each other, uh, the whole natural order is connected. Uh, together in 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 say visible or invisible, uh, subtle and and ob- and coarse or obvious ways, but uh, we are connected with each other. We we remember each other. We have a, a relatedness to uh, to each other, and that when we act upon that relatedness from a, an attitude of whole, of wholesomeness or kindness, then that the the benefit gets through and, and brings blessings in some way, shape, or form. That's how I understand it to work. And the other question about, um, uh, so how do I share that with others? Especially sharing merit with dead friends and relatives is confusing to me. Well, uh, again, from the Buddhist perspective, dead is a relative term. (laughs) So that uh, when one life comes to an end, it doesn't mean to say that, uh, that 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 being is annihilated, but rather this particular life has come to an end, but the consciousness uh, gravitates to a different plane of being. A uh, being can be reborn, if it's a person, they can be reborn in the human realm, they can uh, be reborn in the deva realm or anim- animal realm or a different, many different realms that uh, the consciousness can... Gravitate to, so that um, uh, when someone has has died, they've left the, th- this life has come to an end. But they've uh, the understanding is that that uh, that uh, consciousness uh, has, uh, say taken form in a different mode of being it's not reincarnation as 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 many spiritual traditions like in the Vedic tradition talks about a single sort of bubble of beingness going from one place to another but rather there is like a, like a flame going from one candle to another it's not the same flame but it's not different they are connected this is an image that the Buddha used say when if you have a, a uh, one life is connected to another, like a, a a candle that is lit, lighting the wick of another candle, and then you use that to light another candle, so that the flame is connected it 's not the same flame but it's it 's connected there 's a, a relationship uh, and it 's burning different uh, bodies of fuel but there there 's a relatedness from one uh, one flame to another or one one time when somebody asked the Buddha um, about how is one life connected to another uh, you know if uh, if if I was another person in a previous life and I'm this person now and I'll be another another being in the future how are these lives connected uh, is it the same life or is it a different life and the Buddha said it's uh, uh, you can't say it's the same you can't say it's completely different and then he, the, he uses the example of of saying so are you the same person that you were when you were one year old I said well no, I'm not. I mean, I'm, I'm an adult. I'm much, much bigger than I was when I was one year old. And, so, but, and then the Buddha said, well, are you completely different? He Well, no, <laughs> I'm not completely, because I couldn't be here now if I hadn't been one year old. So there's a relatedness, the, the being that was and the being that is here now. And the Buddha said, that's exactly how it works. So there's a relatedness from one mode of, of being one lifetime to another. You can't say it's, it's a... Uh, com- completely different and separate, there, but there and there. There's a connection. There's a, ca- a causal relationship from one life to another. Until arahatship is is uh, realised uh, in the, for those beings that, that realise f- full enlightenment, uh, then that conditioning of one life to another will will carry on. So the um, sharing of merit with with uh, family members, and again, that's very much part of our custom So like every day if uh, um, people come to the monastery or you, you're able to sort of tune in on the, um uh say, the, at this time, tuning in with the the webcast for the, the pujas on the moon days, like uh, uh, yesterday, uh, at the meal time, then we read out various names and uh, offer blessings, uh, sharing the, the, the good comma of the day's offerings with the particular people, then that's uh, whether they it's so a, a, very often it's a death anniversary, or my father who passed away 23 years ago, or my uh, my husband who passed away uh, a month ago, um, then the understanding is that you know that life that they had has has come to an end, and that uh, the the consciousness has gravitated to another mode of being, and it might be they're off in a deva realm. It might be that they're already you know if your husband passed away 23 years ago, there might be a twenty two year old walking around uh, that's a human you know, a living breathing human being in the world right now uh, that uh, you just don't know the name of but uh, your ex uh, your your late uh, partner might uh, be walking around as a, somebody who's forty years younger than you uh, so that the uh, the say the principle is that you are offering up the goodness there 's an intention whatever way, shape or form your um, the blessings that come from the, these offerings are enabled to reach that uh, other being or those other beings in whatever realm uh, uh, they are say uh, say settled in uh, at this time then may that may that be so may that come about just as the, with a dedication to, to Vesavanna. Let whatever merit I may have gained by this act of giving be dedicated to the happiness of the great Deva King Vesavanna. So, uh, and, and that's how, how I feel it's skillful to hold it rather than, you know, how much merit am I sending and is it getting there? Is it getting lost on the way? You know, <laughs> how can I find out that it arrived? You know, do I get a sort of certificate of, of, of receipt? Do I get a. a, a uh, uh, a form that's signed by the delivery agent, you know, it doesn't work that way, <laughs> I would say, but rather just um, uh, s- sending out those good wishes and uh, having that intention and then trusting that in some way, shape or form, then that goodness will uh, ripen in the life of that other being in some, again, in some way, shape or form that is hopefully of, of a direct benefit to them. Next one, Venerable Ajahn Amaro, earlier today, I listened to Dr. John Campbell interview a doctor from Sweden on Sweden's health policy at this time. Basically, doctors, I guess in Sweden, were told not to bring anyone over 80 into hospital and not to give them oxygen, just morphine. And anyone over 60 who has underlying health conditions, um, would also be prevented from getting oxygen or being admitted to hospital, i.e. both categories should be left to die. I felt incredibly sad and helpless and understanding particularly from the teachers I have had in Burma in recent years that the final moment of life is so important and that drugging people up can lead to difficult rebirths. Of course, the mind calms down after the initial strong emotional response but a feeling of sadness and, this is not right, lingers. And the rational mind can say it's all karma, and you can't solve all the problems in the world and so just observe your mind. If you can do anything, do it and otherwise send meta and share merits. Of course, there is so much that, it, that is, quote, madness in the world and maybe developing the mind so that one can act from a clearer mind is the best way forward, please advise. Anything to date with the virus has somehow seemed manageable, but this feels like a whole other level. Well, there's a, there's a few different elements uh, in there, and um, yeah, I, I wasn't aware of the, of the details of the policy in Sweden, but that uh, also comes across to me as pretty grim, especially as I'm over sixty, and I have had cancer in the past, so. Uh, technically I'd just be left with a morphine drip (laughs) and good wishes Um, but maybe not but uh, uh, so that uh, I can't uh, speak for for the reasons behind uh, them having that that policy Um, uh, but it does come across in the same way uh, of uh, of bringing up a feeling of sadness and also compassion for the people in Sweden who are receiving that news you know you are going to be left to die um so uh, uh that i feel uh, i i feel empathy with that that uh, that kind of attitude with it um i think it's also uh, it's important to I mean, i'm not i'm not a, doc- a doctor but i i know from being around uh, doctors for many years and um uh, being in the role of, uh, of uh, say, teaching, and uh, um, having doctors on meditation retreats or coming to ask for advice. It's, it's not uncommon for doctors without, outside of the pandemic. Uh, most doctors have to make some kind of life and death decisions at certain times. That's part of what you sign up for when you um, become a doctor. You need to take what's called the Hippocratic Oath, which is, you you, know, you vow to be, um, say, uh, committing your work to, to preserving life and to the, the welfare of, of all your patients. Uh, I'm not sure of the, the exact wording of, of the Hippocratic Oath, but I believe that's the case in all countries. When someone qualifies as a medical doctor, that's a commitment that they make that they, they uh, they, uh, say, committed to the, the life and, and preserving the life and well-being of, of all their patients. Um, but uh, uh, it's also the case of many, many doctors who have spoken to me over the years, say that the, in these situations where they're, say, on a, on a very crowded ward um, and uh, they, there's only got so much time and attention that they, uh, they can't give all the time and attention to every single patient and that one patient seems more critical than another and they have to decide, okay, do uh, do we take care of this one and, and rush this one to the surgery and, and look after this patient and then hope for the best with this one or do we look after this one and leave that one? Wh- what do we do? Those those kind of crisis moments come for most people in medical training, uh, either in, in the process of training or in various instances along the way. and. Um, That uh, those are and those are difficult decisions to make, uh, and which I really appreciate. That uh, where they quote-unquote are playing God uh, and having to decide who gets who gets the ventilator, who doesn't, who who gets. We've only got so much of this medicine, and uh, and and who gets it, who doesn't get it, and then uh, that's that's a terrible decision to have to make but by sign, by signing up to be a doctor then that's part of what what you sign up for is my understanding and uh, I'm open to getting feedback or, or correction by by any doctors who are listening to this or watching and, and listening in uh, with, with who can provide a better uh, more informed picture but uh, so I would say that um uh, it's not just say the government policy in Sweden being the the, the issue, but it's also something that uh, many many doctors, if not all doctors, have had to, to work with, you know, to decide who is left to die and who who gets the treatment. And in, in, in anyone who's been in a battle zone or been doing sort of medical work in in a in a war zone or in a in a, um, cri- in a major crisis situation, a um, where there's been, like, the, the tsunami uh, that was in 2004, or there's earthquakes, or then these kind of disaster um, you know, crisis management, uh, these kind of decisions are, are there, you know, right in front of you, it's not necessarily in a war zone, but if there's a kind of earthquake, or fire, or flood, then it, the doctors and medics on the scene, they, they have to make those decisions, okay, who gets the treatment, who, who gets left, we have to decide. So that, um, uh, that in a way it 's it 's sad that those decisions have to be made, and also for the people who are then left okay sorry <laughs> sorry mate you know we, we 've got to give the medicine to this one and it 's not it 's not going to you, but um that is also in in, in a way in terms of Dhamma, it 's part of the the principle that we are not in personal control of the world you know we, we are not in charge, we do the best we can with the the amenities and the resources that we have, and the skills that we have, but, but we are, we're not in control. There's a, um, just as a little bit of an, a, an aside on that, if you're interested in that, the role of the doctor, and the attitudes of the doctor, um, and that aspect of not being fully in control, and things not, um, and having difficult decisions to make, there's a very good book called Complications by a, a doctor called Atul Gawande, who is a surgeon uh, living in, in the USA. And this this book called Complications is it's in a way, everyth- it's a sort of a, a book of doctor's dukkha. And it, it's a very impressive book because it's not making any excuses, it is talking about the, the challenges that the doctors meet and the, the mistakes that you make or having to work with say a, a, consult- a famous consultant who's an alcoholic, who's Making uh, poor poor decisions that you then have to deal with, um, so various different complications and uh, the the uh, the thing that came across uh, I was very impressed with is that the very clear message that the doctor is not omnipotent they don 't have absolute power they don't they can 't cure everybody and um, so getting the mind around that um, lack of of complete control or mastery in the medical world I feel that that was a very insightful very thoughtful and uh, skillfully written book It's called Complications this isn't a book promotion program but I personally found that extremely uh, helpful and uh, insightful so then the, um, uh, maybe the other thing to mention on this, uh, um, in particular, is saying that the final moment of life is so important, and not, not wanting people to be drugged up at the end. So even if all you have is morphine and, and you're going out in a bit of a, a fuzzy state, the, 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 uh, there's a strong uh, folk belief or uh, a, an understanding in, in the Buddhist world, and other worlds as well, that you know the last moment of life is the, is the moment that makes a difference. And you have that in the, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, it's there, you know, where it says um, things like, you know, oh nobly born, whatever the mind settles on at that last moment, that dictates where the the mind will, will be reborn. Um, and, uh, or like in the Catholic tradition, having absolution, you know, uh, deathbed absolution, having uh, last rites and absolution uh, from all your bad karma all your sins being cleansed on your deathbed by the priest, getting final absolution. Um, and so that's a strong tradition also in the, in the in the the Buddhist world, southern Buddhist and northern Buddhist world. But uh, uh, it's interesting that when the Buddha's asked about that by his relative Mahanama, uh, who was the uh, ruler of the Sakyans at that time, then uh, the Buddha gives a different picture. And so I, I often quote this because it's very, very strong, the, the idea that the last moment is the thing that matters. And uh, so Mahanama says to the, comes to the Buddha and says, I'm really worried because you know, I'm the head of state. So my mind is often just filled with all these worries. You know, I'm worried about the economy, I'm worried about the, the army and protecting our borders, I'm, I'm worried about the, the sort of social stability in Kapiluatu. And so my head is filled with all these worldly concerns. And, and I'm, I'm really anxious because if I'm sort of going down the street and my, I'm riding on a horse or the, the horse throws me off and I break my neck or a runaway elephant comes along and uh, knocks me down and I, and I die in the street, I'm going to die with my head filled with these kind of, uh, long lists of worldly nonsense, the things that don't really matter. And and I'm I'm, I'm afraid of of dying with my mind um, taken up with these, uh, uh, say, foolish concerns or, or unimportant concerns. So then what the Buddha says to Mahanama uh, is, I feel, is very, very significant. He says, do not be afraid, Mahanama, do not be afraid, because for many years, uh, for, for decades, you have taken refuge in the Triple Gem. You've you've lived in a very skillful way, and you've been a, a very dedicated uh, disciple, you've kept the precepts, and so that at um, the, uh, uh, the time of death, then, uh, the, the, the mind will rise to distinction. He said it's like if you take a, uh, an earthenware pot filled with ghee, like a, which is a sort of a refined oil from, from butter. So you take a, a an earthenware pot filled with ghee, you submerge it, you sink it into a, a bowl of, of water, and you break the pot. The shards of clay, the earthenware uh, shards of the pot will fall to the bottom. Uh, but the Ghee will rise to the surface. Uh, uh, and he said in exactly the same way, at the breakup of the body, you know, for a long time, you've had faith in the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha, you've, you've been committed to, to goodness. Uh, and so that, uh, that will have its effect. You know, the, the shards of the earth and their pot fall to the bottom, your body will break up and die, but your mind will rise to distinction. Do not be afraid, Mahanama, do not be afraid. So that's uh, um, uh, right there in the in the suttas, and that's what the, the Buddha's word on that. Um, uh, he uh, so that it's he. There are other teachings where he also um, points to a skillfulness of attitude at the end that does make a difference, but it's not the only thing. And I feel that uh, it's good to bear in mind that even if someone has got a, a, a head clouded by morphine. Uh, at the end, or, or speaking of the um, doctors having to make difficult decisions or just let patients die. There's a, a particular mixture of medicine called Bromptons, which I was uh, told about many years ago when I was a student. <laughs> Bromptons, which is a sort of mixture of heroin and, and cocaine, I believe, and a few other things that's given to terminal patients. That means that, uh, that, you're, that no matter how much physical pain they've got, they're, they're kind of guaranteed to go out with a smile on their face. Don't quote me on that. <laughs> I'm aware this is a webcast and being recorded, but uh, a, a friend of mine who was a medical student at the time—that was how he put it—was that uh, uh, yeah, they're, they're, they might be in a pretty miserable state, but that—that's uh, what the doctors give them to make sure it's as comfortable as uh, as possible. So I'm not exactly sure whether Bromptons is still in uh, uh, in use these days. It's probably got a more complicated. Uh, name nowadays but that was what was given as a sort of um, a uh, a kind of um, a dulling of the of painful feelings uh, t- uh, as the, the 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 disease is recognized as incurable it's just a, a palliative uh, maneuver palliative uh, treatment right at the very end so that uh um, even if the mind is clouded by Bromptons or morphine or, or whatever it might be, um, if you've spent 30 or 40 years practicing meditation, developing uh, uh, wholesome qualities of mind and uh, you've lived skillfully, then that's not going to disappear. That's still going to uh, be around. And even though at a surface level there might be a, a cloudiness, then that, uh, the, what the Buddha is saying in his teaching to Mahanama is very clearly like you know, that that goodness, the, the, all those years of effort that you've made, that will, that will have its effect. Yeah. There's also just a, as another small aside, there's a, um, uh, a, 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 uh, an observed process that's called terminal lucidity. That is sometimes noticed by doctors, medical people, and family members, where someone who has been in a very foggy state—maybe they've been in a coma, or they have um, been—they've uh, had uh, Alzheimer's, or they've been uh, unable to communicate for a, a long time—as the the dying process. Uh, as it carries on and the, the person gets close to, to death, there seems to be this way that the consciousness gets less and less affected by the chemistry of the body. And this has been observed in many countries over, over centuries, that those kind of um, uh, obstructions, like being in a coma or being uh, uh, unable to speak or being, um, uh, say, uh, having dementia, uh, in the last few hours that can fall away and uh, so there's a, a as the the life terminates as it re- reaches its end, there is a lucidity and um that the uh, the the mind actually is is quite clear and i 've seen that several times my, myself with people but i 've been with people who are dying and even though i wasn 't there myself my my mother experienced that with my grandmother and my and uh, with her mother when uh, uh, she went to visit her and she, my grandmother had effectively been in a coma for about four years and uh, she had, when my mother had gone to see her every week, she was uh, unconscious and couldn't respond and hadn't spoken a word to her, she was always just really out of it and, uh, and so uh, apparently she would wake up uh, or have some kind of um, exchanges with the nursing staff in the nursing home where she lived once in a while but so she wasn't in a complete coma but my mother hadn't had any kind of exchange with her or hadn't even seen her open her eyes for four years and then uh, uh, my grandmother got, got pneumonia and breathing problems and the doctors were I uh, call, called a family meeting and said, you know, Mrs. Goldsmith is, is very, uh, very, very uh, ill. You know, we, if we operate, she probably won't survive the operation. If we try to give her antibiotics to deal with the pneumonia, she probably won't survive the antibiotics. If we, if we leave things alone, she'll probably pass away in the next 48 hours, or we could try to operate if, or treat her with antibiotics if the family wishes. So the family decided just to let her pass away naturally, again one of those difficult decisions, I wasn't in that, that discussion. Um, But after they'd had the, the family meeting and had told the doctors they wanted just to let her pass away naturally, my mother went to see my grandmother and according to my mother's account, even though she was quite shaken by it, my grandmother turned towards her, looked her in the eye and said, thank you, and then she died the next day. So that um, my mother felt that she was uh, uh, saying thank you for coming every week for, and coming to see me even though I wasn't uh, conscious and thank you for being a good daughter and doing everything that you could to help me and, uh, and goodbye. So whether that's projection on my mother's part or my part, uh, or I would say if, uh, if that is a, a, a genuine... Um, process, and I feel that it's quite reliably reported from hundreds and hundreds of sources all around the world, that it also reflects that say, the same comment of the, of the Buddha, that just because things are fuzzy or confused at the surface, that's not the whole story. And that um, the, the underlying quality of heart and mind uh, that will have its uh, have its effect, and if you have lived a good life and you've you've, uh, I say, um, acted in skillful ways, even if the things are blurry and confused and the whole system is is scrambled, that doesn't negate everything that's that's gone before. That uh, I would say, in the in the same fashion, you don't be afraid or don't, don't look at that as being the, the defining factor. Again, I'm happy to be corrected on this. I realise I'm, I'm not uh, particularly well informed. I'm a Buddhist monk, not a medical practitioner. But from my own experience and talking with people in my own family, then these are, are significant, um, significant things. In terms of um, the um, the dealing with those feelings of of sadness, uh, so, um that feeling of uh, of uh, say or powerlessness you know this sense of this is not right um that that's a very common unfortunately that's a very common feeling that we have as human beings this is not right it shouldn't be this way uh, but in a way that i feel that the the person who asked this question you described it's like yeah well certain things are out of our control i, I can't control what the swedish government does you know, i'm a buddhist monk i'm british i live in england in hertfordshire uh, i uh, i can make some so I can say some words out loud and speak into a camera and uh, uh, offer my advice, but I'm not in control of what laws happen uh, to be enacted in Sweden. But we can um, uh, say, when things are out of our control. When there's really nothing that we can do, then the most helpful thing is to, uh, to let go, to not create further anxiety in our, in our own heart, and to generate those feelings of love and compassion, uh, say, to steer the heart towards compassion. Compassion for the people who are dying, compassion for the people who are you know, making those decisions uh, and wishing them well and so, uh, doing what we can to bring more brightness or understanding into the world, but uh, realizing that it isn't under our control. We, can, uh, uh, we do what we can do and the rest we necessarily leave alone. Uh, and again, as the teachings point out, you know, creating suffering over, uh, something that we can't affect is is uh, is really needless, you know, the, to create anxiety about things that we have no power over, we're just creating more suffering and unnecessary suffering in ourselves. So just to say, to recognize if you could do more you would do more, but uh, certain things are out of our control, out of our power in this moment, and so the most skillful thing to do is to let go and send, uh, share merit and uh, offer Uh, loving-kindness and compassion. The next one. This is also about death. Someone I know has committed suicide. Is it bad karma to commit suicide? Does it result in greater suffering and a bad rebirth with no chance of ever becoming a human again? Well, there's a few things in there, and um, so that uh, 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 according to the the teachings, you know, any kind of deliberate taking of life uh, will have a negative karmic consequence, either heavy or light. Um, so, choosing to take your own life is also, you know, it's a taking of a life. It's Pāṇāti pata, uh, the 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 ending of a. Uh, of a, a, the life of a living being. So there's necessarily going to be some kind of, of negative consequence. Um, so that, uh, and that there will, so there will be some degree of suffering that comes from that, at least, at the very least, in the terms of the, the family and friends, uh, people who are close by the person who's, who's committed suicide. Also, um, the, um, what uh, what transpires in in uh, subsequent births? You know, I can't say I don't have I don't have a um, direct knowledge of uh, of that. But I would uh, I would say it's a, that's an, an incorrect understanding to say that they have no chance of ever becoming a human again. I think that that's there's nothing in the in the in the teachings or nothing in the Pali Canon that, uh, that indicates that it, it's a uh, it's an unwholesome act. It's an, it's got negative consequences but it it doesn't preclude the ability to be born in the human realm again and so that uh, in fact there's there's no act that we can carry out uh, no matter how heinous or or destructive that precludes a being being reborn in the the human realm it might be that uh, they end up spending a lot of lives away from the human realm um, but uh, it's uh, the door is never closed uh, the, and that's one of the things I feel is, is very skillful about the, the Buddhist understanding of, of the cosmos and, and levels of being. Again, I don't speak from direct knowledge, but just the, uh, the kind of um, cosmological structure that we have the, uh, in, in Buddhist tradition, Buddhist teachings, is that there's, there's no uh, eternal hell. There's no, there's no kind of eternal punishment. Every being is redeemable. Uh, an interesting story in this respect is that Mahamoggallana, who I was mentioning earlier today, so he was the Buddha's second disciple, he had great psychic powers, um, and uh, there's a particular encounter that he has, um, it's called the, uh, sutta called the Rebuke to Mara. And so one day Moggallana has got this stomach pain, a pain in his guts, and he feels this kind of weird sensations, and he says, oh, something, something strange going on in my guts. And he, having psychic powers, he turns his attention into his body, and then he realizes, "Oh, Mara! Mara has invaded my body and is causing trouble." And so then, uh, Moghalan sends his his uh, psychic message to Mara and says, "You, know, Mara, stop causing me trouble. You know, get out. You, know, uh, <coughs> the, you know, I, I know it's you. Stop, uh, stop uh, uh, being so mischievous and, and leave me alone." And then Mara picks up that thought from Moggallana and says, he can't really see me. I'm, I've got, I'm really covered here. You know, he can't possibly know it's me. You know, there's, there's, no, there's no way. Like my, my screening technique is, is absolute. There's no way he could really detect it's actually me. And then uh, Moggallana sends another thought saying, you're thinking there's no way I can know it's you, but I do. <laughs> I know it's you. And shall I tell you why I know it's you? I, I recognize you really well. And then Moggallana tells this kind of amazing story. Again, you can say this is all just folklore or made up, but it's, it's there in the suttas and the, the language of it is seems to be quite uh, reliable. Anyway, he says so uh, in the in the lifetime of a of a previous Buddha. I think it was uh, Kakusanda Buddha. Uh, I think um, then on a certain day, then the Kakusanda was walking with his disciples through this village, and then. Uh, the Mara Dusi entered the mind of a, a village boy, a shepherd, a shepherd boy, and uh, caused him to pick up a stone and throw it. And it hit the head of the, the Buddha's chief disciple, I think it was called Vidura, and kind of, uh, broke his head, and so he was bleeding. And then the the Buddha turned around and said, and, and turned towards the Mara Dusi and said, uh, "Dusi, uh, Dusi Mara, you know no moderation." And then uh, the Buddha, having sort of caught him and, and, and sort of uh, sort of uh, accused him publicly like that, then according to the stories, the ground opened up and Dusi, uh, the Mara Dusi, was swallowed up into the hell realms, <coughs> and. So then uh, Mahamogalana says, Do you know how I know that story? Uh, and Mara says, No, I don't know. He said, Because I was that Mara Dusi. That was me. And that Mara Dusi had a sister called Kali. And Kali had a son. And that's you. So I was your uncle. <laughs> that's how I know you. <laughs> this is a kind of amazing story. Uh, so here you have the Buddha's second disciple, Mahamogalana. And a few lifetimes previously, he was the embodiment of evil in the universe. He's like Mara, the, the force of, of delusion in the universe. So you can go from being Satan to being a saint in a matter of a, you know, a number of lifetimes. But the, to me, that's mythologically, that's extremely significant. So even though you, even if you've been Mara and, and responsible for all kinds of chaotic destruction in the world, in the universe, uh, still you can, pull yourself out of it you can work with it to the point where you can be an Arahant and a great noble disciple uh, and a a fully liberated being a number of lifetimes later on. So even if that's just a fairy tale it's a really significant fairy tale because it's saying every being is redeemable nothing is is lost. So uh, I would say that committing suicide is is unskillful unwholesome, but it certainly doesn't close the door to uh, say, being able to climb out of those, those dark and, and painful states and to reappear in the human world and to, to use a human life in a skillful way. So, a couple more. Dear Ajahn Amaro, at a recent Q&A, you seem to have said something like, a stream-enterer no longer takes refuge in sense pleasures. Quote unquote. Would you be able to expand on that? How does a stream enterer relate to sense pleasures as opposed to those who have not yet entered the stream? Um, I think I'm being misquoted there. I'm not sure I recognize the handwriting. But, uh, I th- uh, I, uh, because I would. Um, uh, a stream enterer is still subject to sense desire, the karma chandas, uh, and ill will. A uh, stream enter still experiences uh, sense desire and ill will. A once-returner, a sakadagami, um, experiences those two in a more mild way, um, and then uh, a uh, it's an anagami, a, a, a non-returner, um, is uh, free from sense, de- sense desire and ill will, and so is an arahant. So I think I'm being misquoted here, um, and so I would say in terms of how does a stream-enterer relate to, to sense pleasures. Is that, you know, a stream enterer still is, uh, subject to, uh, karma chanda, the sense desire, so that their, their mind can still be, uh, taken in by, uh, the, the relishing of the pleasant or the, um, or aversion to the, uh, the unpleasant. Uh, yeah. if that's a disappointment, anything, oh, I've got to get all the way to anagami before I can conquer this. Then, okay. Maybe life is full of disappointments. I'm not sure if that's, a, I could probably answer that in a bit more of a full way, but uh, time is moving on, and I'll just uh, leave it there for today. I think it was written by one of the residents here, so if it's not a satisfying answer, they can come up with a follow-up question next week. Uh, Dear Ajahn, some practitioners spend lots of time and energy pondering about terminology and formal issues of the teachings or delighting in diatribes on the most obscure passages of the Abhidhamma. Most times when I hear these discussions, my first reaction is, so? But then I think that maybe I'm condescending or simplifying things too much. Any advice? By the way, 99% of those with that tendency are men. Why? It might have been a man who wrote this note, so I'm sure why that comment needs to be there at the end. but. Uh, I don't, uh, it's not signed, so I'm not sure who wrote this. Um, well, the, um, uh, I think we have to uh, pay attention to our own mind states, and we can tell for ourselves, by, by looking at whether we uh, are, so taking a position of, of conceit, like, well, I know better than you, you know, who do you, you're an idiot, if you, you're interested in that, or you like to dwell on things here, you're not, you're not wise and intelligent like me, uh, if we watch our minds, then we can we can see that kind of. Uh, if you are wise and kind and noble like me, you know you'd be you'd be fine. And if we pay attention to that, we go, hang on a minute, that's pretty conceited. <laughs> that doesn't uh, that doesn't feel uh, very wise or kind or noble at all. And so, uh, if we use the meditation to Really explore and examine our own mind states, our attitudes, and then we begin to to pick up those uh, more subtle qualities of attitude. We begin to uh, say, "Recognize!" Hang on a minute. Um, I'm I'm grasping an opinion here. This is ditupadana. That I'm I'm taking a, a fixed view. I'm judging this person. I'm I'm hearing them talk about a, a particular thing and maybe that's just the way that they speak maybe i'm assuming that they are attached or maybe i'm assuming that they are um, that they are are kind of uh, say losing their way is that a sure thing and so that uh, in terms of that reflection of so <laughs> then it's good to turn that back onto our own attitude like oh, that person's a really you know he, he's really attached so <laughs> Why does it have to affect us? Why does it have to be something that we're carrying around? And um, I think that maybe the the last thing to share on that is that uh, Lumpur Cha used to say, uh, look at others 10% of the time and look at yourself 90% of the time. That's 10% shared out between everybody that you live with, (laughs) and the other 90% is is on number one. Because that's really where we can make a difference. And I feel that's uh, I first heard that that advice 40 years ago, and I still think it's completely relevant. That um, uh, we can spend a lot of time dwelling on the the things that we like or dislike in the people around us, but where we can really make a difference in life is on is with this one. That's where uh, we can we can really change things. And wanting to straighten out all the people around you, or thinking. If I, if you were different, I would be happy. You know, if you <laughs> if you didn't act that way, then I would you, know, you would make me comfortable. There's a certain value in that, but far more value comes from what is my mind doing with praising this person or criticizing that person, being anxious about this one or or um, having a, you know, a judgmental attitude towards another one, and uh, so that the um, uh, the, the way that we pick each other up, uh, the way that we take hold of the attitudes that people have, and, and uh, we don't, I think we don't realize the degree to which we have a choice, that if someone acts in a way that seems to be uh, opinionated or pompous or dismissive, um, we can consider well is there something for, is there something for me to say there is there something for me to do that's going to be valuable or uh, is it better to just leave it alone leave them leave them be let them let them be that way um and seeing that we have a choice we don't just have to react or even if we don't say anything to them carrying them around like all day long oh, he's like this and he shouldn't do that and, i can't believe he said that that's totally ridiculous so that you are you are burdening yourself uh, un- unnecessarily. The jitta is, is filled with with those perceptions that the mind is, is, is the jitta sort of keeping them stoked and inflating them, re- reifying them, making them solid and real unnecessarily. I would say life is too short, you know, particularly with the this pandemic, you know, who knows when the virus is going to arrive or has arrived and maybe we've got uh, uh, a few short days left to live. Do we really want to be carrying all those people around? That's an important question. And uh, to, and uh, as I was mentioning a week or two ago, the, the, really according to the teachings, we only have three or four seconds to look forward to. So uh, if you've only got three or four seconds left to play with, you know, really, you know, who do you want to be carrying around? What do you want to be filling your mind with? If if that's uh, if, uh, if, if that uh, is taken seriously, and that if we use that simple reflection, do I need to carry this around, do I need to make much of this person's attitude or not, you, if you just ask that question 99 times out of 100, the answer is going to be no, <laughs> don't need to make anything of it, nothing, nothing to say or do here, therefore let go. So for these uh, words for reflection this week.